Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Brett Hutchins. And Brett, it's great to see you on what looks like a sunny day in Australia. Um, Tell us what's on your mind these days. That might be anything, personal, familial, professional, political, who knows? What are you pondering right now? Uh, Given... Given I am recovering from COVID, spending a lot of time pondering the the, the two-year sort of lockdowns in Melbourne and the, the COVID crisis and whatever might be emerging, I suppose, systemically and politically and in terms of media at the other end, and also the state of universities, um, probably nationally and, and globally. But, yeah, this, the, the impacts of a crisis that a lot of people seem to be still troubling to find the language for. I um, recorded episodes recently with Graham Turner and Michael Deli Carpini talking about these crises. I wonder if you could give them a bit of contour since uh, you are a progressive academic, but you're also a senior manager. Yeah, um and a senior manager, well, on a good day and a functionary on a bad day, that <laughs> uh, was ahead of school during the Melbourne's hard lockdowns um, and experiencing a government, a prime minister that was objectionable on almost every level, with the prime minister who literally invited international students to leave. Sorry, I'm laughing, everybody, because there's a cat attacking Toby. Not because well, speaking about something of great gravity. No, quite. In fact, I just got a paw in the eye. Uh, so, what is it, Bingle? Uh, he is a Basque militant. His birth name is Chinguri. Uh, Chinguri, which means ant in Basque, not a very good name for a cat. So, I've renamed him, or my younger daughter renamed him Naranja because he's orange in colour. The problem is that my experience with cats, which is fairly extensive, is only with adults. I've never had a kitten before. So the first year was okay, but we're now in serious macho adolescence. And this can be tortuous and fun. But at the moment, it it involves four paws scratching my arm and a jaw biting my elbow. So whilst I'm with you, Prof Brett, very much and want to hear and treat with all due seriousness this issue of the crisis in universities from your perspective. Occasionally, I may be taking evasive action, which could lead to you laughing again and my replicating your laughter. Um, I could probably make the segue that I think the the only living actants in our uh, my house during the lockdowns who were most happy were the two cats. Um, because everyone was around all the time. Um <laughs> And, yeah, there's something going on. I thought as a head of school at the time, which is not a position that's, well, it's a a difficult position, um, but strangely enough, one that can actually make a difference um, in terms of creating, I suppose, habitable workplaces um, for, for, for colleagues and scholars and good ideas. But... In the midst of a crisis, I was reflecting a lot on the fact that um, the way we would deal with the crisis normally, you know, the collective, the social, the symbolic, the ritual, the coming together, the marching together, the gathering together and all the rituals that come together around that, but Mm. to place everybody into their individual selves that they were in by virtue of pure luck. Some people were living in quite good conditions with large backyards. Um, and I'm talking about students and staff here. Um, some people were living and driving a distance to work and were living in you know small rural communities. Other people, however, were living in one-bedroom flats with no courtyards. Mm. Um, and some of our students particularly had arrived very recently in Melbourne only to discover they were literally locked in what was termed by the government a ring of steel. Um, and, yeah, and just the, the challenges of that. So at one level you had the, the crisis of universities 
um, falling revenue, students in distress, some really wonderful stories in the way that both staff and students came together to support each other. And I think that's an incredibly, you know, it's really important to know. It was, a, it was actually a genuine privilege to be able to observe. Mm -hmm. um, but there were sort of other times in which universities in crisis caught within a wider crisis and that exponential impact um, because we had cases where I had I have enormous respect for my colleagues in the sense that the emotional work they were doing with their families, with their pets, um, with their being able to not leave or travel further than 5K from their house, which was all happening to me, the amount of emotional support they needed to give to their students was above and beyond um, and certainly not recognised in any like collective bargaining agreement that I could ever I've ever read, while at the same time turning off the screen when they're dealing with their students, turning around and um looking to their family and then doing further emotional work. And this had, you know, differential impacts, particularly in terms of gender, um, mothers in particular, people who had aged parents, um, people who had kids with specific needs. Um and I'm not going to go into it in any detail, but certainly my my son was doing year 11 and 12 during all this, and it didn't go well. Um, and to my mind, the two years since those lockdowns, in a lot of ways, and this is I'm, I'm talking about a specific experience in Melbourne. It seems that we're we're only just starting to come up with the language and ways of thinking forward, rather than constantly talking back. And as I've travelled for work, it's really hit me the fact that people in Melbourne at least within the Australian context, seem to talk about this experience differently. And I'm assuming it's because of the hard lockdowns that happened here. That, that weren't, there were lockdowns all over the country, but um, they seem to go to another level if I look at the length of them in Melbourne and, and um, the perverse impacts of those. So, yeah, there's the personal, I suppose, as the intellectuals are reflective, but there's also ways of trying to use sort of sociology, cultural studies, media studies, and trying to make sense of what was happening, given it was all also happening on Zoom. Yes, and of course, we're using that medium right now to talk to one another. In terms of research interests, it's not easy being a senior manager and an active writer. No, Tell us about very, that. Yeah, that's, that's a very accurate observation. Um, look, I, I've... Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm breathing out because um, I find this difficult in that, um, look, I was mentored by a lot of great people. I was very fortunate. I actually genuinely think I was lucky. Um, and a lot of those academics um, taught me in different ways. I mean, you had talked about Graham earlier. I'm thinking of David Rowe. I'm thinking of Jim Mackay, who you know, obviously. I'm thinking of yourself. I'm thinking of a number of other people. Libby Lester, who's a colleague I've worked with for a very long time. Um, that the experience you build as a scholar, as a thinker, as a teacher, as a researcher, um, you want, or I've always wanted people who are good academics doing let's call most of the time administration, sometimes it's management, very, very occasionally it might be leadership. Um, and my frustration with the system probably in the last 20 years that I've grown up in um, is that the, the so-called management track has become something that sometimes not very good academics take, and I'm never going to name anybody, I don't enjoy defamation. Um but it's a real responsibility to lead to to do those jobs for a period. Um, I think if every, I think if more academics saw that as just something you did in your turn, the problems of managerialism would be much less. Because of course, when no one else wants to do the job, someone will get up, and it's hard to get them out after after that. Uh, particularly when you know, and I'm. I've had COVID and I'm a bit tired and I'm, I've probably got my filters off slightly, particularly when some, you know, the, the worst actors seem to be just trying to get out of teaching more than trying to lead or manage or administrate, um, which I always struck me as a peculiarly strange thing to become an academic who didn't want to enter a classroom. Um, so at the moment, 
I feel like I was as a as a sort of path I was following, it was my turn. Yeah. Um, I've gone to another position that I don't actually think I would be in, interestingly enough. Um, the Deputy Dean of Research in my faculty without the experience of, of a, a, a ministerial secret veto over a grant that you're well aware of. Um, and probably a growing interest in what's possible in terms of regaining some agency in the way people talk about, think about, um, having input into policy submissions by the university and things like that. So I, I'm, I mean, it's always hard to know. Um, I don't pretend to know myself perfectly. Maybe I am ambitious and just like titles. I'm not sure, but I certainly, I, it wasn't a position that particularly interested me to tell that experience. And um, the problem to go to your question is there are days where I once was an academic where I feel like I don't do the research, don't do the writing I would certainly like to do. Um, I certainly still do plenty of reading and I do do HDR supervision um, and, I, and I guess lecture um, each semester, uh, but it is difficult because the longer you do these jobs, the, the, the fur, further away from the coalface that you move. Yeah, you, no, I quite agree. Move. I was very struck when Ellen Mortella was provost at the University of California, Riverside, where I taught. But Ellen, despite being in a very elevated position, continued to get grants, continued to write and continued to teach and I think that's absolutely essential. And so often these senior managers are completely undistinguished academics. Anyway, that's not true in your case, but I can't help but ask you to share with us to the extent you feel possible, and you have published about this, the story of your grant application with a colleague being vetoed by a politician. Yes, uh, the previous federal government, or perhaps the uh, probably the administration before that um, in a very, what well, for most listeners I'm sure will be a familiar um, scenario anywhere where it seems that the Murdoch-owned press exists, culture warring in probably places where it doesn't actually anyway, but uh, culture warring is probably the key political motive, uh, reactionaries and a number of other groups out there, but the, the Liberal Party in a in Australia long ago, stopped being a, a conservative party. Um, and News Corp in this country has become a, a sort of the, their media arm in a lot of ways. And attacking academics is um, probably shooting fish in a barrel from a culture war perspective. And humanities and social sciences academics are a particularly easy target um, when it comes to claims of, you know, not funding, government funding for research not being, a, you know, sufficient value to justify um, because of everything from strange words to jargon to, um, it always struck me as a curious, even before I ever applied for funding, which is just a reality of the Australian system, um, you know, research funding is uh, unfortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, a part of the way that uh, the Australian university system works. But when it comes to those sorts of attacks, which, um, you know, probably hit pretty close to home to me and, you know, and I'll probably, you know, where I grew up in some ways, is like, well, why would you need funding for that? Um, it always struck me is that we're kind of, they, they've got us caught in a pincer movement where if it's, if it's too esoteric, theoretical, um, technical, it's, you know, you know, it's not relevant enough to fund, but if it's popular, understandable, accessible, well, why do you need funding for that? Doesn't everybody know about that? Um, I think on this occasion, which is a, it's a deep irony, and I was working with a colleague that you're well aware of, uh, Libby Lester, who uh, was until recently at the University of Tasmania, and I uh, we may, may, I don't know whether I'm giving anything away, maybe joining Monash university for a period shortly um in that we put together an RA we'd been working together for many many years on the Tasmanian forestry conflicts looking at sort of mediatized environmental conflict and, 
and the relationship between politics, journalism, and social movement, environmentally, environmental social movements. And we we moved attention across to, I suppose, a more popular realm and the communication of environmental issues and climate change and sport. Um, borrowed uh, borrowed the title of the grant from you, Toby. Actually, um, your Greening Media. Uh, we called it Greening Media Sport. Um, the communication of environmental issues and sport and fell foul of a ministerial veto alongside 10 other grants in that ground, that round for the Australian Research Council. Um, it's a complicated story in that we only found out because of a leak that went to a Labor politician, Kim Carr, who then spoke at Senate Estimates. So we had received documentation from the Australian Research Council, which has since changed um, the way it goes about things, stating that our grant had been unsuccessful, even though it had been recommended for funding by my by, by reviewers, but the minister had not signed off on that funding, which is the ministerial right, but had we had never been told. So we simply got a letter saying our grant had been ranked as unsuccessful. Um, and then it's probably fair to say all hell broke loose, to be honest. Um, it was a pretty, you know, there's... It was a very difficult period for a lot of people. I think Libby and I felt that we had reached a point in our careers with a certain level of job security that if we weren't going to speak out and, you know, argue back who was, um, there were people who were relying on in that 11 grants. There were people who were relying on those grants for their next contract. There were people who subsequently left the country. There were people who just weren't supported by the universities. And I can say with great fortune that I was I was given nothing but support by my institution uh, by my dean by my vice chancellor and I was given not encouraged but I was certainly given absolute permission to speak publicly in any way that I saw fit um, so we uh, there's a piece in the conversation uh, uh, outlining the situation and asking some very pointed questions about the implications of the process and the and well what appeared to be an abusive political process. Um, I was getting off the record calls from journalists. I was on, I had phone conversations with the shadow minister for education, appeared on ABC television here, um, uh, arguing with who was the person who, um, or responding to some statements of the education minister that morning. So, um, and for all this, I was giving, whether people agreed with me or not, I don't know, but they gave me complete license to respond in the way I saw fit. As you know, um, given your subsequent involvement in the project and a later iteration, we, to our knowledge, it is, it was then blocked the second time for reasons that I think are still in dispute. Um, the second time around eligibility and was funded on the third occasion. So I think we are possibly the only grant in the history of the Australian Research Council that's probably been recommended for funding three times and funded, but actually funded once. Um, so all good things come to an end. Um, I feel like the project in some way is a bit cursed, but it is producing some interesting work, as, you, as you're well aware. Well, <laughs> pardon me. And I thank you very much for giving me the chance to get involved in its further iterations. I wanted to pick up something, something you said, Prof. Brett, really en passant, but your head fell when you said it, which was, which may simply mean, you know, COVID-19 moment. <laughs> when you were talking about the scepticism amongst, in a sense, the popular classes about some of this funding, you said something to the effect of, and that would be true in terms of my background, you said. Could you tell us a little bit about your background? How did you get? To, when did you become? How did you become? How did you become Brett Hutchins? <laughs> I'm still becoming Brett Hutchins, Toby. Um, <laughs> the, look, I grew. I was born in um, the deep western suburbs of Sydney. Um, you know, I suppose even though no one talks about class anymore, what would have been a working class family? I come mm. from a rugby league family. Um, I come from a sporting family. My father was a, a, a genuinely um, excellent athlete, not you know elite, not just fastest in his high school. Um, that was a big deal in high school. Good grief! That's right. <laughs> no, no, but you know, um, 
you know, my father played uh, rugby union for the armed services against the All Blacks. He ran mm. um, state hockey for New South Wales. He and that what they weren't the sports he was the best at. It was athletics and running in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, he was, was drafted um, in for Vietnam in the lead up to the Olympic trials and never got to go to Olympic trials. So that sort of talent. Um, who knows oh, whether he would oh. it. Um, as a result, as I say, I played a lot of sport growing up. Um, I, I was very good at some of them, but um, on the con, never, never a chance of being elite. Um, and I, you'll never be I, as good as your father. No, that is absolutely <laughs> true. Um, and I grew up in. I thank my mother for a love of reading. Um, um, you know, mostly airport novels, admittedly, but I, I love of reading nonetheless. Um, <laughs> and I grew up. I grew up where uh, scepticism towards intellectual pursuits was just in the air. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and, and that's a tradition in Australia, not just of the working class, is it? I mean, uh, actually, the elite of the society has. Historically, I, I don't know about it anymore, really, but I used to know a bit about the country. Uh, had a long history of loathing intellectuals. Yeah, and I think there's a, you know, people need to probably reflect about a, a country that was founded as a penal colony based on, you know, brutal Indigenous dispossession. Um, these are not story myths of foundation and founding fathers. This is a a different this is utilitarian in almost every way yes um and yeah and so yeah there is certainly an anti-intellectual overlay at most levels um i think with probably the and and look and i was strange thing to admit in a recorded conversation Look, I was I was frankly a bit of a mess, uh, you know, uh, as a teenager into my early twenties, um, and but I knew the and my parents, you know, it's that ongoing contradiction. There, of course, my parents love me, and well, my mother's no longer with us, but they're oh, proud I went to made it to university. Yes, yes. But there's always a suspicion, at the same time, there's a suspicion of the things you learn at university and all that book learning um, and that thing. So, but I was, you know, um, some really great lecturers, you know, attracted my attention. I, I hadn't, you know, I, I had no idea whether, I, I had no plan on being an academic at that time, put it put it that way. Um but yeah, you know, I was fortunate enough to be taught by uh, Bill Mandel, who was one of the few sports historians in Australia at the time um, at the University of Canberra, um, which was unkindly called Belconnen High by some people, um, you know, because compared to a, the, the, the distinguished ANU up or the Australian National University up the road, um, which I didn't have the marks to get into, um, the. You know, but I, it was that discovery of people who were engaged in ideas who, you know, I ended up in something called the Centre for the Sports Studies, which interestingly enough was tied to the establishment of the Australian Institute of Sport, I discovered later, um, that taught journalism and sociology and a little bit of cultural studies and a bit of history and a bit of management and it was a bit of a pot puree. Um, and... Yeah, I was fortunate enough that I had there was a someone there who saw something that I obviously didn't realise and encouraged me, um, not necessarily by encouragement, by but basically telling me to stop being an idiot, um, and in a gentle way, um, and then I was actually better at this than I realised, and that was that turned out to be true. Um, so if, you know, I that transformed and it. I opened out a life that, you know, went off and did a PhD at UQ, University of Queensland, sorry, um, in Brisbane. And that discovery of people, and this is about the power of teaching, um, people who, you know, were, you know, Jim Mackay, Murray Phillips, others who, you know, just some incredibly generous colleagues at the time. Uh, and I, uh, 
there weren't you know, for all the problems at universities around the time in terms of lack of senior female staff at that point and a very other things um you know it was uh, it was an it opened out a world that has delivered me a life that um I feel very fortunate to have had I've seen I think my father only left I think my father left the country for the first time last year um you know I've seen large parts of the world because of the the job that I'm fortunate to have and met people all around the world. And it's, you know, I, I, I think sometimes the critical nature of what we do in the state of university makes it hard to step back and understand that good fortune. I think one can keep the critique and the good and the good fortune in your head at the same time. And a couple of contextual points. So the, Western suburbs of Sydney, as you said, traditional working class areas. Now they are working class and heavily migrant as well. So it was sort of the white male industrial proletariat and their wives that tended to dominate the Western suburbs. Now it's a it's a much more diverse, but still very underserved and disadvantaged part of the country, as I understand it. The other point to make that's important is that when we talked about anti-intellectualism, there's also a long and vibrant tradition of working class self-help, self-education and commitment to learning. In addition to all this scepticism that we described, there's a populist wing that's sceptical. There has long been a, I don't know whether it's still there, but from the 1940s through to the, certainly the 1980s, a strong tradition of trade union organizing to educate workers so that they would be in a position to make solid arguments with politicians, with bureaucrats and with bosses. So uh, I just wanted to note that tradition as well as the one that we were focused on briefly there, because yeah, I think it's important. It was always, and, and I, you know, and, and so I mean, in a lot of ways, my upbringing was in, in quite Normal. I'm not sure what you. Sorry, unexceptional is a far better term because. Unexception. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, because of but and it was always that contradiction to me. I, I I could observe it that people, you know, my father finished. He left school at 14, but he finished high school at night school. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That's the you know, it, yes, right. Yeah, exactly. But it always talking. struck me that the you know encouraging to be educated, being proud of when, you know, I did well at school, but at the same time existing in a milieu in which one doesn't get ahead of oneself, um, that you can be a bit too smart for your own good and you can, Mm. I was told, read too many books. um, And And you can like the sound of your own voice is another one of my favourites. Not an expression that I think one hears anymore. The sound of one's own voice is so valorized in commercial culture, right? It, it's so important. <laughs> yeah, this was this was before the age of the personal brand. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, but yeah, and no, I, 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 and I think that is partly why you know, and I discovered I enjoyed teaching, um, and it is partly that realization that the difference you can make and you know most of the time you don't but those moments where you do make a connection with a phd student or a, or a first year student or a, i mean they i i i think part of my issue around the crisis that I, we started i started talking about at the beginning or i raised first is i'm concerned that we're losing the language to recognize that and I do think it's got to do also to the way that we engage students in entering universities as, of course, consumers um, and market to them. My, I'm watching. I, t- I realise I'm getting old in that um, my son chose to go to the university that I work with. Yes, it is weird. Yes, um, he went there not because of me and he probably pretends that I don't exist when he's there. Um, he's a lovely young man, um, but he did a unit in the faculty of arts that I this year or last year, sorry, 2023 that I set up in 2008, um, which was a moment of discovering that I'm getting old. Um, but it also speaks to watching him go through university and the difference between my undergraduate experience and what I'm seeing with this. And 
where we are, um, either in late cap, whatever term you like to use, late capitalism, neoliberal, neoliberalism, neoliberal subjects, or all, all, all the things that position you within a marketplace rather within a culture that you know, or a society and culture defined by the market. And um, I feel sometimes that we're not, we're not as as scholars. Uh, the language of the collective isn't um, needs to evolve, um, and we're fighting a management that, you know, the, the issue of fighting management within contemporary universities is a much trickier thing than the way they used to be organised, and we need to update either our approach, our tactics, and end or our thinking in order to secure the place of things like the humanities and social sciences within universities. And that's where a lot of my time is being spent trying to, and having some successes driving the centrality of, you know, has disciplines within my universities, within my university. Um, and at some point they'll stop listening to me because I'll start repeating myself. But when that happens, I'll step down and go do some more teaching and writing, hopefully. Speaking of writing, let's get on to talking more about your research. Your first book derived at least in part from your doctorate, and it was about, I suppose, in Australia, the most famous Australian, I think it's fair to say, and certainly the most famous Australian sportsman, Donald Bradman, who was a cricketer, who, like many of his age, actually lost, in inverted commas, his best years to the war, in that these were young men who were in their 20s, or in his case, early 30s, when the Second World War hit, but who nevertheless, and I'm thinking of other people like, say, Dennis Compton on the English front, or Len Hutton, or, again, in Australia, Keith Miller, Ray Lindwood. These guys have astonishing records, statistically, but you can only imagine what those records would have been like had they not lost six years and in some cases suffered physically. I think of uh, Len Hutton losing partial use of an arm in a training accident and Keith Miller suffering back pain because of a fighter uh, plane accident. So uh, tell us a little bit about what you tried to get at with Bradman and why you were so immodest, sir, as to choose to write about the most famous Australian, as I have just called him. Um, yeah, uh, as I say, possibly not the most diplomatic, and there is a, a touch of the troublemaker, particularly about me, about me at that age. Uh, look, I was particularly interested. It's kind of interesting to think back on, given it's been so long, to be honest. Um, I wanted, I, I was very much, you know, I'd, Graham Turner comes to mind. I was reading Making It National and National Fictions. I was very much interested in Australian national identity at that point, possibly like a lot of subjects, partly to understand myself, but partly because I was just genuinely interested in the history of the country and its relationship in the region and the world um, and trying to understand it at the level of the popular. And, you know, I, you know, I actually did look at um, other potential case studies, you know, but had discovered that, you know, everyone from, it seemed to me that everyone from uh, Simpson and his donkey to Ginger Megs to Dame Nellie Mel, but that, to, they'd all been done. Um, and I soon discovered why no one had touched Bradman because um, it didn't make you very popular when you did, if you did it from a critical lens. Lives um, of the Saints only welcome. Other than, I guess, Ian Chappell, who could be a co-conspirator, I imagine. Yeah, and it opened out a, what it did, and I think, you know, I, I haven't pulled out that the book that subsequently was published um, under the title Don Bradman Challenging the Myth um, until, re, you know, until a couple of years back. And, you know, I think the part that stands, and you look, I look back on work that was completed in my early to mid-20s, basically in late 20s. I think the book came out when I was 27 or 28, and I'm now... 50. Um, the book is that what Braver managed to crack open was that tension between the populist dimensions of sport as something that represents the Australian nation 
you know, in a very powerful way, um, we are a sporting nation and, you know, people who never read Donald Horn properly still getting um, the, 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 the term lucky country, not quite understanding what he was getting at. Um, and the politics um, in that, you know, cricket, the larrikin, and cricket's, you know, through this yabber on the hill at the SCG, is, you know, it's written through with the political tension between the conservative establishment you know, cricket and Australian cricket captain, which Bradman was at one point, their relationship, having a relationship with the Prime Minister, the Prime Minister's eleven, which is a match still played every year. Um, and that, that tension between, you know, the the popular and the populist and the conservative and the establishment. And Bradman was very much a conservative in the meaning of that term at the time. Um and it's interesting you mentioned his war record because there's controversy around how he managed to really avoid service and the, the, the favours that may or may not and have not been proven to be got called in. Um, the fact he was a Protestant and a Mason, and I don't think Australia had a Catholic um, cricket national cricket captain until the 50s. Um, only Protestants need apply. Um, and his relationship with many of the players he played with and against who had returned for war from yes. war. The way that he ordered, um, or as Captain asked, ordered, asked, whatever term you prefer, you know, Keith Miller to bounce English batsmen and Keith Miller in quite colourful terms told him absolutely not. And just to give some context, if I could very quickly, Brad, yeah, um, first of all, about the Yabba and SCG. So the SCG stands, stands for the Sydney Cricket Ground. And the Yabba was a Depression-era spectator, very famous working-class guy who was involved in uh, selling rabbits, which were food available to very poor people during the Depression and then your comment about Keith Miller being instructed to bounce players, what that means is the equivalent in baseball, say, of a pitcher who pitches at the body of the batsman, which is illegal. Now, in the case of the, the, the bouncer in cricket, what that means is the ball is dropped fairly short at, at significant pace and aligned with the body of the player so it'll move towards his or her head. So... Uh, Sorry to interrupt. I just it's no, my... no, I apologise to listeners because as a former cricketer, of course, these things come very naturally to me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one forgets other people didn't play or care about cricket. Uh, How could that possibly be? Um, yeah, and I think at the time when I was writing the thesis, you know, we had one of the worst prime ministers in this country's history, and I think someone who probably did more damage to our national culture than possibly any other prime minister in our history. John Howard, who was um, regarded himself as a cricket tragic and Bradman's biggest fan. And that's sort of the work that stood up around way. I looked at very much at the way Howard used Bradman to promote certain meanings of conservatism in relation to what Australia was, what Australians thought, the way Australians, you know, were represented. Mm. And the overall project as a whole was very much around the represent, you know, the cultural represent cultural and political representations of Bradman. And, you know, and it, it went well. The book went well. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's where it continues to stand up because um Every time, look, and for listeners, it's a Bradman, you know, stuff occasionally emerges out of the archive and, um, you know, in terms of Bradman's letters that previously were unavailable and because he also went on to head the Australian Cricket Board, um, which is now called Cricket Australia. So he went on, he was actually an administrator longer than he was a player. A very, a very distinguished and successful administrator, albeit controversial in lots of ways. That's right. He and you know, I, I think there's a very strong argument that at least in Australia, and certainly, I mean, he, he met Babe Ruth uh, on a tour of a cricket tour of the US. Um, he would certainly be Australia's first professional sports person, I would argue, in terms of his promotional activities and yeah. you know, selling everything from ice creams to cars. Um, he was paid to play um, or certainly given a job um, and there's some debate around that to play for South Australia, which in the in the, in the state cricket competition in Australia. 
Um, and I think, yeah, there's certainly his role and then being a staunch defense, defender of amateurism and administrator. And he played a role in the creation of one-day cricket as an opponent of it, um, yeah, as well as a role in um, the apartheid um, protests uh, in Australia against uh, cricket and rugby tours in different ways. So, you know, it, uh, people who don't know Brad or don't much about cricket, sort of I've had some usual story for anyone who studies something like sport and from a critical perspective, it's like, well, people who aren't investing in it naturally would say, well, why would you look at that? But he opens out as a, as a subject um, a lot of Australian history across the 20th century. It's not just about his playing career. Yes, and uh, who knows um, what what role he played in capital P politics. Where did the controversy arise from your coverage of this complex figure? The uh, look, I ended up in a series of arguments. Um, I don't one way in a lot of ways. Uh, it wasn't me arguing back, um, but the Bradman Museum in Barrow in New South Wales um, is run by something called the Bradman Foundation and the curator of the museum and the foundation at the time um, weren't happy um, with what I was doing in some ways. I think it was based on a fear of, um, it was based more on a fear on what I might be doing than what I actually was. <laughs> um, so, you know, I placed the thesis under embargo because I was negotiating a book contract. Um, and, yeah, the they weren't very happy. Um, there was a particularly unpleasant phone conversation I had with the curator of the museum um, who, again, going back to another thing, something we spoke about, um, made a very, very clear and forthright case that he regarded my thesis as public domain because it was paid for by the taxpayers who paid my, because um, they helped pay my scholarship uh, as a PhD student. Um, and I, as I say, I, uh, I think maybe growing up a bit, I probably didn't handle it particularly well because I just said, well, I'll send you a copy of the book as soon as it's available, which probably wasn't the most helpful com helpful thing I could have said at the time came off very smart alecky and frankly it probably was very smart smell alecky but um he was out of line and unfortunately um they over time i think what they were upset about there was a chapter about merch um, the commodification of bradman and yeah. um by the museum its products you know everything from bradman cookies to bradman t-shirts to bradman souvenirs um and they didn't they didn't enjoy the critique that carried along with that. Um, they they sort of missed the deeper argument around the way the nation itself was being commodified through these these sort of activities. Uh, but again, they. I I also think actually it's funny. I was thinking about I got a, I got a fair bit of hate mail actually when the book came out. By the way, Did West you? Australian, yeah. Um, Back in the days where people wrote letters, it was great. You just didn't cop it on social media. Um, but I think it was, if I was to, from the vantage point of now, it was the problem in the, the title. It was the term myth. And for people who are coming from a scholarly background, particularly humanities and social sciences, that myth has a particular set of connotations. And, I, you know, I was using myth in the terms of Roland Barthes. You know, it's a selective representation of reality. Um, but in a lot of people's, I discovered thought of myth as a lie. Yeah. And I wasn't, and it wasn't, it was about how Bradman had been used by others, by politicians, by the museum, um, by biographers, by uh, filmmakers, because you would perhaps remember the Bodyline miniseries um, that was very big in the 1980s on Australian television. Um, it wasn't, in fact, a biography, a critical biography of Bradman. Um, but that's what they became very, um, they were just a very defensive organisation at that time. That's probably the best way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. Now, since then, Prof, you've edited and, and written a lot, a vast array, and not all, but much of it's been about sports. But one shift I think that's fairly significant is that a lot of it 
is now about the media. Could you tell us about that shift in some of what you've been working on? Yeah, look, in, in some ways it was in some ways it was probably going it took me a while to accept what I was actually interested in. Um <laughs> Uh, look, I started off wanting to be. A, I did a bachelor of journalism. I just, but I, I finished it. But I was going to be a terrible journalist, and that was. I was told as much by senior journalists. Um, that it wasn't that they were very generous at the level they said your questions are really interesting, but they're more suited to a university context than a than a newsroom. Mm. Um, so it, it took me. You know, I I started out with an interest in journalism. In sports journalism, in particular, because I knew it. I mean, it was something I understood um, because probably just how much I'd read of it. Um, the and then I sort of moved away. I went from I think you know I think I wandered off into history and then historical sociology and then did a PhD in sociology. Got a job at the University of Tasmania in the sociology or department or school there at the time, and then except that all the time was slowly picking up teaching units in media, the history of media, media technology. Oh, okay. okay. Um, and then I accepted a job at Monash in communications and in the communications and media program and taught a unit called at the time that meant something and very quickly didn't mean much at all, which was called new media, which was a large, large survey style course to second year students. Um, that was really, you know, about internet studies. Um, so I, it's always been threaded throughout everything I do, media and um, communications in, in different ways. So I, what I ended up doing was, with particularly in conjunction and collaboration with David Rowe, um, Western Sydney University, who's been a wonderful mentor um, and helped take the rough edges off me in all sorts of ways as a writer. Um, he was look at the history of you know the the rise hist almost history in real time so you know every, mm. over the ten year period sport and the internet sport and social media sport and gaming um, sport and blogging you know I and it, it all led to uh, monograph um, and then subsequently afterwards which was sport, a book called Sport Beyond Television which I'm I'm very proud of um, which is not you know um, I. Again, I look back at part like every other book that one writes uh, or edits or any article. I look at it as parts of it, and I, I'd probably do them differently. But it, you know, it 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 got close to what we were going for, and I, you know, I think there's a satisfaction in that. Um, but it was really around the way that over time the the you know the tech industries, in particular Silicon Valley, was slowly entering you know the sports industries. Um, and mediatizing at all sorts of levels um, and it was ways and we did a lot of uh, interviews with industry professionals at all levels around you know how those processes were working to the point where in the last I think with you know mega events like the World Cup and Olympics we can all see the way in which sport is filtered out into other parts of culture it's no longer you know and it's actually an act of you know, it's actively shaping media culture globally. You know, it's not just reflecting sort of other broader other processes. And in terms of all of this, are there in the dramatic movement of screen coverage into sports of particularly the last fifty years, but I guess most spectacularly the last twenty? Obviously, this is a very big question and it varies from place to place and time to time and sport to sport. But what would you list as the costs versus the benefits of this massive shift? Well, look, probably driving a lot of the work I've done since 2000, 2000 around the 2000, 2005 period has just been the question of, you know, you know very basic foundations of political economy, you know, who wins, who loses and how from processes of change. Yeah. And, um, you know, and what I, at the time, you, you, you remember, I remember reading your work uh, at this time, you know, there was a lot, you, we all remember the, uh, 
the celebratory discourses of the internet and how it was going to democratize information and you know unleash cultural production in all sorts of different ways and i was just always probably pretty unpopular with some people at the time i was always deeply skeptical of those arguments um just because of course uh, um it kind of ignored who exercised power economically um and if i looked at sport you know there was this idea that um all of a sudden all these minor sports would get you know they'd be visible and but i, I think the lessons of paid television and television before it and multi-channeling told us that wasn't that the powerful were going to become more powerful so driving at the, or sitting at the core of a lot of that work was an argument um about the fact that as technology screens viewing option user practices were diversifying in arguably historically unprecedented ways because of the explosion of internet technologies, mobile devices, smartphones, right. um, 3G, 4G, 5G networks, stadiums as media infrastructures, that at the same time, what, you know, it was like this, people couldn't really, it's almost like they hadn't read Marx or Polyani or a bunch of other people in that, they kind of believe that this was going to democratise where power sits. And I was saying, no, it's actually going to concentrate. The powerful are going to become more powerful here. The same leagues, networks, corporations. And then, you know, and I, at the time, I suppose a lot of people probably found me a bit depressing. Um, I wish I was wrong in a lot of ways, but I, that's what I was seeing. Like when I was talking to technology professionals, I, yeah, I was talking, I, w I was interviewing people who were running startups like data, sports data analytics startups, but their end game was to be bought up. And you can only find this out by talking to them. Now we could all see it from the vantage point and out, it all seems pretty obvious, but at the time it wasn't, you know, it was like this idea a thousand flowers are going to bloom. Um, and I think, you know, the, I'm, I'm happy I was wrong. The, 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 the positive story that I'm happy I was a sort, little bit wrong about, sort or maybe moderately wrong, was the rise of women's sport. Um, and I think that's connected to a range of other things happening outside sport. But, I'm you know, I'm over the moon about that. Although I do, I'm a little bit concerned about the way that the rise of women's sport, things like the Women's World Cup, is that we're still talking about organisations like FIFA and the way the criteria by which we're celebrating them is simply deeper levels of commodification and the sell selling of advertising. Um, but, yeah, I it was all around this, this fact because um, if I looked at a lot of the work going on around popular culture, everything from uh, I was thinking of Jenkins' work, every television program you could name, you know, it was like, you know, fans are expressing themselves in all sorts of ways and... Sport was an interesting way of getting at the fact, yeah, and it was all going to lead to, it is leading to market concentration, data data harvesting, and the concentration of the most extraordinarily and unprecedented, or arguably, um, actually, if I go back to the Gilded Age, it may be not be unprecedented, but certainly um, extraordinarily levels of um, concentration of wealth and power and rising levels of social inequality and sport was certainly, I, I think, um, one element of popular culture that was sort of selling that vision as a, as a fun thing, the everyday pleasures of sport. And Prof, I've got one final question for you. And after I pose that, I'd like to give you the opportunity to add anything that we've missed or where you've had additional thoughts as you've been responding to my rigorous interrogations. And this is a question about one of the other big themes that's emerged in your work over the last, I guess, decade, perhaps, and that's the environment, the environment and sports. Could you tell us a little bit about that? And that was the one that led to your being silenced brutally by the Australian government. <laughs> I don't know. Brutally. Uh, yeah, that, that brings some connotations. <laughs> um, yeah, look, the environment work came out of a really great friendship and collaboration I have with Libby Lester. Um She's from Tasmania, um, and I was working at the University of Tasmania for two and a half years with her. My son was actually born in Tasmania um, in 2003. Um, so we, she had been the ages first environmental reporter. 
Now, the age uh -huh. is a is a a newspaper of record based in Melbourne and is yeah. one of the few dailies in Australia, maybe one of two, I'm not sure, that are outside the control of the Dirty Digger, which is the technical name given to somebody known popularly as Rupert Murdoch. Yeah, has since been uh, taken over by uh, the Nine uh, Media Group. and Which is... <laughs> a very successful, massive commercial television network in Australia, but historically was run by another uh, astoundingly powerful and reactionary family. Yeah, there is no escape. Um, but the, yeah, and she uh, had access to people who were, you know, she she opened my eyes. She made the move into universities and um, she opened my eyes just to the, just the incredibly important events that were happening in terms of environmental protest around old growth logging in Tasmania. Um, it was a place where you would probably find out more about what was happening in the forests, reading the New Yorker or um, Le Monde or um, De Spiegel, than you would reading mainland Australian newspaper, Tasmania being an island off the south coast of the mainland. So wow. that... <laughs> Let's just take a moment to ponder that. You would find out more reading The New Yorker, Le Monde, Der Spiegel, than you would reading an Australian daily. Yeah, because, um, yeah, this is one of the planet's, arguably the planet's most important world heritage areas. Um, you know, the Franklin. Um, it's an incredible, I mean, it's an incredible place. Um, and there has been a long-running um set of debates and politics around the state of the environment and, and the forests in Tasmania. And it was being played out between formal politicians, news and activists. And of course, and we were what Libby, we, we were again, you know, spending time wandering around forests, talking to people who like going up trees. We were talking to journalists. We were talking to, you know, to use the formal term, semi-structured in-depth interviews. Um, but spending so there's a lot a, There's a tree hugger halfway up a massive object and you're saying, hello, I'm from the University of Tasmania. I would like to engage in a semi-structured interview with you, please. Could you, could you okay? please sign this ethics form? <laughs> I need you. No, I'm not coming down. All right. <laughs> uh, the university and I'm here to help you. <laughs> yeah. But what we, the work we ended up doing, interesting enough, tied into the technology work because we increasingly started to look at the ways in which technology was being used by, by, the, by the environmental movement to get the word out beyond Tasmania. So everything from high-tech tree sits using satellite phones and talking to journalists around the world. Um and over time, as I say, it was it came to the point where you know, with the climate crisis, um, the UN's um, support for climate action framework, increasing discussions of sustainability in relation and critique of mega events, um, that it was a sport was a, an area of popular culture in which that would would and is actually playing probably a, a larger role than many people are aware of in, you know, promoting or preventing, you know, you know uh, environmental sustainable, environmentally sustainability and messages around that. Um, I think given what's regarded, I suppose, reasonably critical approach, I think in some ways I've been searching for something to get out or, or find a way of expressing some positive messages. Um, unfortunately, I think the last COP, probably shows why maybe, um, you know, that, that's difficult to do sometimes. Um, this is the conference but, of the parties, and you're referring to the one that was recently run by a guy yeah. who's a minister for petroleum and also head of one of the biggest petroleum companies. And, you know, attended by, at for, the, for COP events, the largest amount of fossil fuel lobbyists ever. Um, and so, you know, your work on in sport and the environment um, and a number of others, but, you know, it's been really important, but it's been around, again, speaking to people in industry, trying to find out, you know, what's preventing change. Um, so, you know, there, there's some good stories amongst it, you know, to, I suppose, connect back to a, 
you know, a discussion about Australian cricket captains. His current Australian cricket captain, Pat Cummins, set up Cricket for Climate, which is in doing things like installing fourth, you know, uh, solar panels and four thousand cricket clubs around Australia. Um, cricket Australia is no longer sponsored by Alinta, which his holding company was the seventh larger emitter of carbon um, in this country. Um, but we also have sits on the other side where, of course, there is a large number of other sports where sport is being used as a platform to wash the image of um, mining companies like Santos and Woodside and so on. So, you know, again, there's, a, there's an interesting political field to explore there around what gets represented, how and why. And, and, and of course, it shares with the US and Canada being one of the few really large, really wealthy countries and having failed to invest in fast rail infrastructure during moments of inc incredible richness, uh, leading to the necessity, in inverted commas, to fly all over the place in order for the national pro sports to exist. Yes, and we did some work with the CSIRO measuring carbon emissions for travel for all the major sporting leagues in this country. Uh, that's um, the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organisation, uh, the, the nationally funded side. Now, how's this? Like. Captain Acronym has spoken. Oh, you're remarkable, Toby. Uh, it's almost like you're with you. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you did some work with them to try to measure the carbon impact of the the fact that uh, Australian football teams and, and cricket teams, amongst others, are flying to every state for their game. Oh. And propose some ideas of how to reduce those carbon emissions by organising the competition differently. So, look, the, the really lovely bit, and I think it probably comes from, um, you know, having, as you said, you, you, you publish a lot in journals and books and things, but one of the really nice features of this project has been a focus a lot more on trying to get word out uh, or communicate some of this through things like the conversation or the news, you know, the newspapers. Libby and I published a piece in, you know, the local, in the Mercury, which is Hobart's uh, major newspaper, um, Play the Game um, in Denmark and that, and that organisation. So, yeah, I, it's, I've, 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 it's a project trying desperately to um, make a small difference in some way, knowing that, Sport um, has potential capacity in that area, as despite all all the um, perhaps untoward things that are also done in sports name. Well, Prof, to finish up, are there things we haven't touched on that you would like to mention? No, I, I feel it's a pretty comprehensive. I'll apologise to your audience uh, for my roundabout ways of speaking, um, but the it's. Yeah, I, I think it's yeah. There is something I would like to say. Actually, um, I think we're at a point within our disciplines, and this goes back to where we started. Um, I feel like the culture wars in some way. And I'm I'm talking about Australia, probably. No, I I don't feel expert enough to comment on other countries, um, but I feel like the culture war attacks have actually made a lot of people pull their punches and that the timidity that has flowed from that um, in the sorts of scholarships it gets produced, the sort of arguments that get made publicly, even though I understand there is a cost, I know I've paid it, um, you know, in effect shows the effectiveness of those attacks, you know, that timidity, you know, I, I think, politically, socially, culturally, different ways. Of, we have so much to offer as a set of discipline and thinkers. Um, and I have been on a personal crusade within my university convincing people and other faculties and STEM faculties of this fact. And Science, technology, and medicine, engineering, medicine. Yeah. The interesting thing is, is that there's a ready willing audience if you speak directly and openly. And, you know, are prepared to actually probably, you know, get turned away at different points. But I am, you know, I look at enrol. I'm looking at the state of universities in this country and it's getting harder, particularly in regional areas, maybe even universities that I was able to access when I was coming through where studying humanities, arts and social sciences is getting harder and harder to, to do. 
and um, we've actually need to prosecute the case while understanding that you open yourself out to criticism. So um, I think that if something comes of the post the crisis, I think COVID showed exactly why humanities and social sciences and the arts matter so much. What did people do during them? Misinformation. You know, did, I, they, I, did they write software or did they watch sporting replays? Right. You know, and how quickly did sport reorganise itself? You know, yeah. cultural producers, writers, drama, film, yeah. music. We have to, yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I, I have to be careful in how I express myself sometimes, but I must admit that this is not a time for, you know, very measured sort of messages. It's a time to actually advocate quite strongly for what we do and the difference it makes for our students, just because there's so many of us who are actually evidence of that difference that makes. And look at where all our students end up in all sorts of industries and they have great experiences with it because of the things or they, they learn so much from our literature and the scholars and the disciplines that, that constitute it. So Brett, I think thank that'll... you so much. That's a wonderfully eloquent and convincing argument. Uh, I really appreciate it today. As always, when I speak to you or read your work, I've learned an immense amount and it's greatly appreciated. Thanks, David. It's very generous and it's great, great talking to you again.